welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Father, thanks for this time together. What a privilege it is to be gathered here together. Lord, remind us that uh, there are many brothers and sisters in the faith throughout the world that don't get this privilege. They don't get to sing publicly and sing loud to your praises. They don't get to open the word publicly. And so, Father, we, we count it a great joy and we give you thanks that we um, have the freedom to gather here. Would you bless our time together? Pray that you would um, fill me with your spirit as your vessel to communicate your word. Fill us all with your spirit to receive your word well. Soften our hearts, Lord, and have your way with us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the Eighth Commandment, I want to just first give a framework for how do we see and perceive the law. Are we seeing it correctly? Do we have the right understanding of the Ten Commandments and why God gave them to us? And and to do that, I want to take you back to the beginning. I want to take you back to Genesis 3 and the account of the fall. Story that we're mostly all familiar with where Satan, through as a serpent, comes and tempts Eve and Adam who was with her. I want you to remember how he came to deceive Eve and what he said to her. He He comes to her and he poses a question. He says, did God really say that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? And he's already twisting the words of God and planting a seed in her heart of mistrust of God because God didn't say that. In fact, what God said was you can eat of any tree in the garden. And we don't know how big the garden was, uh, but we assume it was a pretty vast area of land. And we know that it was beyond our wildest imagination of beauty and just lush beauty. And he said, you have all this. All this is yours to reign over and to have dominion over, to be fruitful and multiply in this place. And this is all yours. And there's just this one tree that I'm going to put parameters around, restrictions around, and say, don't eat of this tree. But the enemy comes in his deceptive ways, and he says, did God really say not to eat of any tree? And what he's doing when he's asking her that question is he's getting her focused on the one thing she can't have, and gets, gets her eyes off of the forest of God's grace and on the one little tree of restriction. And what happens as a result of that is her view of God becomes distorted. She no longer sees God as the great giver, the generous, gracious giver of all this, but the strict restrictor of this one little thing that should be hers, according to how the human mind works in our brokenness and our fallenness. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says in his book, The Whole Christ. He speaks to this. He says this, Now all Eve saw was a negative command. One small object near the eye can make all larger objects invisible. Now it was the sight of the forbidden tree blocking her vision of a garden abounding in trees. Now she could not see the forest for the tree. Now her eyes were on God, the negative lawgiver, and judge. In both mind and affections, God's law was now divorced from God's gracious person. 
Now she thought God wanted nothing for her. Such a heart sees the Lord as a slave master and not a gracious father, as restrictive rather than generous. You see, the laws are tied to the heart of God. And they're an expression of his grace and his love for his people. And he gives them to us through this thing that we call covenant, that he called covenant. But oftentimes we view the law not as a covenant, but as a contract. Ferguson went on to make this distinction between a contract and a covenant. He said this. He said, a contract is negotiated and ultimately says, I will be your God if, if you will live like my people. But a covenant is unconditional. And a covenant ultimately says, I will be your God, therefore you will be my people. In other words, what a covenant says is a covenant is not conditional. It's a one-way street where God says, I will be your God, period. And because of that, therefore you will be my people. And as you are my people, here's some principles, some rules to live by that will be for your good and for your flourishing so that you will know how to interact with me. You will know how to love me. And what we can often do is we can see the Ten Commandments in the law is that they're given by this begrudging God to say all these things, yeah, I'm going I'm to take those from you because I want to condemn you. I want to put the law over you and weigh you down by it. Now, the law ultimately does weigh us down because we can't do it perfectly and it does show us our great need for a Savior. But the law in and of itself is good. How we see and perceive the law is tied to how we see and perceive God in his nature. Is the law strict stipulations that God gives to restrain us as he demands loyalty from us? Or is the law, is it eternal principles flowing from God's nature that are a gracious expression of his love for his people? It's really important because it makes a difference how we enter into sermons like this. Not focused on what we can't have, but focused on the giver of these good things. I want you to think real quickly. Last statement on this as we move into the commandment. But I just want you to even think about the book of Exodus. How the book of Exodus is laid out. If you've been in or around church, you know that the book of Exodus is called that because it's the account of where God raises up Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. They've been in slavery for 400 years and he goes to rescue them and to exit them out and into eventually the promised land. For many of us, we will read the book of Exodus and that's the crescendo of the, of the book. We go, man, this is exciting. The Red Sea parts and all these plagues and all these different things. This is, this is like a movie and I'm in, I'm in this. And then you kind of get to, the verse, uh, to chapter 20 and it's the giving of the Ten Commandments and then you kind of see that as the last big part of the story because everything from there in the, in the remaining chapters gets into all these details about the tabernacle and it needs to be this height and length and this and this and this and you kind of go okay I'm not sure what all that's about and what we often miss when we see exodus that way is that we think that, that the climax of the story is the exodus resulting in rules that God would lead his people out of slavery just to take them to this foreign land and give them a bunch of rules and if that's how we see Exodus, then we're, we're actually missing the crescendo of the book. Which the crescendo of the book is that he took them out of slavery, gave them these rules so that they would begin to understand what it means to live and walk with God because he's about to come and dwell with them. He's going to come and tabernacle with his people. And Exodus ends with that. 
moving into Leviticus, here's the law so that you know as I come to dwell among you how to interact with me, how to walk with me, how to love me. We have to get that framework so that we understand the heart of God in giving us these commands, not as a begrudging judge, but as a loving father. So, we move into the eighth commandment. It simply says this, four words. It says this, you shall not steal. Now, I know Randy has joked about this in past weeks. I'll joke about it again. I, I, as I prepared for this, I kind of thought, well, I guess I'll say that, and then let's cl- close in prayer. Not real sure what else to add to that. It's pretty straightforward. Don't steal. I think as we dig into this, you'll see there's a lot more to it than that. But at the, at the surface, it meets the eye. We go, man, okay, that's it's pretty simple. Do not steal. For many of us, stealing this commandment, it feels safe. It's a finally, finally, we've gotten to a commandment that's for other people. I don't struggle with that. I can't, can't recall the last time I broke into someone's house and stole something. But stealing and theft, I think, is closer to our hearts than we might want to first admit. It's really a part of our DNA, part of our sin nature. We're born into sin, and you don't have to teach humans to take. I have four kids. They're older now, but I can tell you this. When they were two years old, their favorite word was mine. Mine usually with some kicking and screaming and pushing and clawing. And the object that they were declaring mine was not even theirs. But they wanted it to be mine. So therefore, I take. I didn't have to teach my kids that. I didn't have to sit them down and say, hey, whenever you want something, this is what you do. It's in us. It's who we are. There's all different kind of subtle ways that we can cheat, that we can steal. I'm going to talk a little bit about those in more detail in just a minute. But some of the simple ones to hit is, Cheating. Miss Evans, ninth grade Spanish teacher, if, you're, if you ever listen to this, I'm still sorry. <laughs> How many times do we just give the subtle glance over? What did he put for that one? Stealing. Plagiarism. Recently I heard a, a comment from Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor up in Michigan, and He said that in 2008, and I don't know how much these numbers have changed in nine years, but he said in 2008 there was an anonymous survey done with pastors uh, to where they could answer anonymously, and they they indicated on this survey that 40% of the pastors surveyed admitted to plagiarizing sermons, to listening to some other person's sermon online or reading their manuscript and then regurgitating it to their congregation on Sunday mornings as if it was their own. It's, it's really more a part of who we are than we might be willing to admit. I have a confession to make. Some of my favorite films of all time deal with theft. Actually, they're centered on stealing. And I know I'm not the only one. Ocean's, Ocean's 11, 12, 13, The Thomas Crown Affair, Catch Me If You Can, The Italian Job, You watch these movies and you find yourself rooting for the bad guys to do things that God says is wrong. Right? And then you go, wait, oh, there's something not right about this. The heists that get our blood pumping. And and then you realize, okay, this this is stealing. This is what the Eighth Commandment says not to do. Stealing is 
is very closely a cousin, maybe even a, a sister of selfishness. Stealing is birthed out of selfishness, and you and I, we, our hearts are flooded with selfishness. Stealing is just one small action step away from the, from the heart root of selfishness. And listen, stealing isn't wrong just because God says, it wrong, says it's wrong. Stealing is wrong because it is the very antithesis of who God is. The very opposite of his nature. We'll get into that more in just a bit. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you three questions to consider. First, how how do we steal? How How do we even do this? What does it look like? Simply put, we take from others what is rightfully theirs. Obviously, we know that. That's a simple definition, but we'll give a little more meat to that. First, from the Heidelberg Catechism, this is a catechism that was written in the 16th century. Uh, it's actually written by two men, 28-year-old uh, and a 26-year-old, which I think is just awesome. And they were commissioned to write this catechism that would basically serve as a summary of the Christian faith that would be approachable and understandable for the youth and young pastors of the day, to where they could just see very clearly what it is that we believe. So one of the questions in this catechism is question 110 that says this, What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? Answer, God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices, whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, links, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, If you're not familiar, usury is where you uh, charge an unreasonably high interest rate on loans or by any other way forbidden by God. It is also as covetousness, all abuse, and waste of his gifts. So suddenly this becomes a deeper understanding. It's not just the taking of physical things. It's more comprehensive than that. John Calvin expounds on this and says this, the violation of this commandment is not confined to money or merchandise or lands, but extends to every kind of right. For we defraud our neighbors to their hurt if we decline any of the duties which we are bound to perform towards them. Let me read that last sentence again. We defraud our neighbors to their hurt if we decline any of the duties which we are bound to perform towards them. If we see the Eighth Commandment that way, and in the way that the Heidelberg Catechism is beginning to help us dig into this, then Pandora's box opens, and our hearts are exposed. We can steal by defrauding someone else's reputation. Driven out of this overwhelming need that we have to be affirmed, maybe we've been hurt Someone's hurt us by their words or by their actions, and our response is to get back at them in some way. And sometimes what that looks like is it means stealing from them their reputation. Maybe it's through gossiping or some type of story that's spread or whatever that you can begin to tear them down and how they are perceived by the public because it gives you a sense of power and accomplishment to get back at them in a way that ultimately at the heart level is stealing from them what is theirs. We can steal other people's dignity by our apathy and avoidance. Here's what I mean by that. I want you to consider all the things that are going on in the world today that is stripping 
image bearers of God, people who are made in the image of God of their dignity. You've got the sex slave industry and the trade industry and slavery at large. You've got the refugee situation where people are being displaced from their homes and being killed and slaughtered by organizations like ISIS and other extreme Muslim groups. You've got places all over the world where people don't have clean water to drink and are dying daily and they're in poverty and hunger and all these things. And and my involvement, I won't even put this on you, maybe you relate with me, but my involvement with that extends pretty much to seeing a story posted on Facebook and either clicking like or sad face. Because let's be honest, it's too inconvenient to step into something that complex and that dirty and actually aim and long and pray for and get involved with to an extent that people regain the dignity that they were made to have. My selfishness, my busyness does not allow time for empathy for others. And when I do that, when I operate in this Jeffocentric world where everything is around me and my life and what I can do and what, what needs to be done today, and I don't open my eyes to how I might be apathetically, unknowingly stealing from others the dignity that is theirs, that we're called to move into as the church, as the followers of Christ, when I do that, I'm stealing. We steal from others as parents. We steal from our kids. We steal from them things that they deserve from a parent because our focus is so wrapped up in all the other things going on in life. Or, let's just be honest, we're too wrapped up in the iPad in front of our face that we don't hear their cries for attention. As spouses, we steal from our spouse when we're more focused on what they owe us than what we can give to them. In business, we still value and worth from others when we're more concerned about the bottom line than the, than the image bearer across the table. These are things that we would never think of on a daily basis that, that I'm stealing in some way from these people. But we have to get down and dig deep to what is it that's there that may never manifest in me physically taking property or something from someone else. But the heart of the matter is that I am stealing from them out of my own selfishness. Why do we steal? Selfishness, yes, we've established that. Let me give you three more things quickly of why we steal. First, we, we steal because we're desperate. We're desperate for something. We're desperate for our own reputation, our own image, how we're perceived by others. Maybe we're desperate for wealth or for notoriety or fame or recognition. Whatever it is, we long for something. And we're desperate. And listen, desperation is not the issue. In fact, desperation can, be, can actually be a really good thing that God can use. The issue is not desperation. The issue is what do we run to as a result of our desperation? Or more specifically, who do we run to? Instead of defrauding another or hurting another because it gives us a sense of power and accomplishment that fades so quickly, we, we fail to realize that what we need to, this longing, this desperation that's inside of me that maybe pushing me in this direction that's not glorifying to God is only answered in Jesus. Only in his sweet embrace. Secondly, we steal because we want to be rich. You go, well, of course, that's the whole point. Like if we think about it most often in the context of money, that we steal so that we can be wealthy. 
And so I do mean it in the literal sense, but I also mean it in the figurative sense that we can define rich in, in a number of ways. What is rich to you? And I would simply say this, what you value most will drive what you steal from others. What you value most, what is rich to you will, will drive how you interact with others in ways in which you might take from them. From the literal sense, I, I was made aware of a story just this week of a man who had been hired by a long-time, lifelong friend of his. And this friend of his um, was a very successful businessman, had, had started and, and really grown this very tremendously successful uh, business corporation. And he had hired his longtime friend to be the chief accountant in-house over, over the, all their, their operation. Just recently, his good friend found out that for the better part of a decade, he had embezzled $11 million from his close friend. And I can guarantee you, I don't know this man, haven't sat down and talked with him as to why he did this, but I can guarantee you that he didn't start out thinking, I'm going to embezzle $11 million. He probably thought, I'll take a little here, I'll take a little there, wife needs this, son needs this, whatever. And it became this thing where he got so immersed in being rich because that's what he valued most, that it didn't matter to him that he was deeply hurting and wounding someone that was actually a close friend for his whole life. Because what he valued most drove what he would steal from others. We steal because we want to be rich. But lastly and most importantly, because it undergirds every reason as to why we steal. We steal because we, we struggle to believe and trust in the providence and the goodness of God. We struggle to believe that he is writing a story for us where he is providing everything that we need at all times and in all places. And what we are so good at doing and what I am so good at doing is we, we look at everyone around us and we begin to play the comparison game. We say, well, they have this that I don't have and they have this that I don't have and they on and on and on and on. All the while we're forgetting to look to the one who is the giver of all of our needs and the sustainer of our life. To take our eyes off those around us and to stop comparing and to look at him and to believe and to pray, God, I want to believe, but help my unbelief that you are the providential God who provides everything for me. And even when I don't feel like you're providing for me in the ways that I would like for you to, I know that you're for me. I know that you love me. I know that you're good. I know that you're sovereign. And I know that you have my back. It's funny, it's really easy to come in here to sing to God when the music's flowing, but it's really hard to sing to him and trust him when we don't have what we think we need. To be able to train our minds through his power within us to trust him as the one who gives us all that we need. That's the bedrock of why we still how do we change? How do we change? This is, uh, this is where we collectively give the Sunday school answer. Jesus. It's a familiar answer. Listen, don't let the familiarity of Jesus being the answer strip away the power of that answer. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. Always. 
and it never gets old. I want, I want to think about some thieves that Jesus encountered that we get to see in Scripture. I'm going to tell you about one of them, and I'll tell you the story, and then I'll quote one verse from it, and then I'll tell you about another one. I want you to think about the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, according to the Jews, the way that they would see Zacchaeus, they would see him as a professional thief. They despised him. Zacchaeus was hated by the Jews. Here's why. He was a tax collector. Not only was he a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. So he had tax collectors working underneath him. So he was even more hated. The Jews thought so little and and hated the tax collector so much that they had a whole separate category, the Pharisees did, for, for these guys. Remember what they would say? They'd say, Jesus is off eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. It wasn't enough just to call them sinners, right? They didn't quite get it. There was a whole other category of evil for these tax collectors because they would take from the Jews their money and give it to the government that was oppressing them, the Romans. And in between, they would pocket a lot along the way, make themselves rich. So you can imagine how rich Zacchaeus was because he wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. And you may be familiar with the story. You know how it goes. Jesus is coming through Jericho and as the scriptures tell us, Zacchaeus is a, a wee little man. It's not a direct quote, but he's short. And so he gets up in a sycamore tree because he's intrigued by this Jesus. And, and what I love about the heart of our Savior is you've got all these throngs of people around, and he beelines for the tax collector. And he goes to the tax collector that everyone hates, and he says, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. When you're the king of the world, you can invite yourself over for dinner. And we're not told exactly what happens next. The story moves quickly. The next thing that we see is we see that, that Zacchaeus is beginning to repent. And let me just, a little side note, that, that happens a good bit in Scripture. Sometimes the, the writers of Scripture, particularly the Gospels, are not giving us every part of the conversation that's going on. They're just giving us kind of the crux of the main theme of the conversation. You know, like when Jesus calls the disciples, you know, what we get in Scripture is that he, it looks as though he just walks up to these guys and says, follow me. And it's almost like they are in a trance, and they go, okay, I'm going to follow you, and they don't even know why. More than likely, there was a conversation that happened there, and the crux of the conversation was, follow me. And they left everything and followed. Well, the same thing happens here with Zacchaeus. If you read it in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, and the next thing that we know, Zacchaeus is saying this. There's a conversation that I'm sure that happened while they walked to Zacchaeus' house and had dinner together, but Zacchaeus says in verse 8, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here's what we gather from that. Jesus dramatically transformed this dude's heart quickly. He met Jesus and he was totally different. He went from this guy that was constantly making his life about what he could take from others to make himself rich. And all of a sudden, through meeting Jesus, everything has changed. And he says, I'm going to restore fourfold anyone I have stolen from. He says, I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. Like, this is crazy talk from a man like this. But he met Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, he changes your heart. And he makes you different. He makes you like him. Think about Matthew, one of the 12 disciples that he walked up to and said, follow me. Matthew was a tax collector. And he left everything. He left that livelihood to follow this carpenter from Nazareth. 
Think about the thief on the cross. I, th- I find it interesting that Jesus was hung between two thieves. Right, and one of these thieves looks to him in his last breath and he says, remember me. And Jesus looks at him as he is shouldering the very sins of this thief upon himself. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He took the sins of a thief to rescue the heart of a thief. Jesus changes us and he gives us his heart of generosity. Caleb led us earlier in confession and the assurance of pardon was John 3.16. And what we have to get from that is this, that the opposite of stealing is not to not steal. The opposite of stealing is to give. For God so loved the world, he gave. I heard a quote that just this week, and it was a quote that is intended to make us laugh and for us to resonate with it and go, oh man, that is, that is so true. And the quote was this, givers need to learn to set limits because takers don't have any. Some of us hear that and go, man, I've been there, that is absolutely true. I try to help this guy, and I give him a ton of stuff, and next thing I know, he's back wanting more. And I help him again, and that's not enough, and he's back wanting more. And I'm telling you, he's bleeding me dry. I need to set a limit on this guy. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't set limits? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, i got to set a limit on this one. He's just sinning too much. In fact, here's what Jesus did. Jesus said, I love these people so much that what I'm going to do is I'm going to nail, be nailed to the cross for them, and I am going to give abundantly, constantly, immeasurably, limitless, limitless grace, limitless mercy, limitless love, limitless patience, unlimited kindness and compassion and goodness. And I'm going to nail myself to a cross in such a way to where that flows out of me that we would literally bleed him dry. That he would pour out his blood for us to the extent that we would have access to the Father. Us takers who don't deserve anything, what we do is we take from God. And he says, I will give to you anyway. You will smite me. You will scold me. You will scorn me. You will strip from me. You will hang me naked on a cross. You will take from me my dignity and my reputation. You will spit on me. You will mock me. And my response in return, as I hang there, is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I give to these people, and I love them anyway. That's the heart of your Savior. And then he says this, that's the heart of my people. Love like I love, give like I give, Jesus says. What would it look like if God's people, instead of just not stealing, were actually so in tune with the heart of Jesus that we actually begin to say to people who bleed us dry, so to speak, that we would be able to say to them, you can take from me, you can steal from me, you can embarrass me, you can shame me, You can mock me, you can spit on me, you can do all these things to me, but I will love you and I will give to you. Is that not the heart of a parent? 
The parent of a wayward child, you can run, you can disobey, you can rebel, you can say that I don't know what I'm doing, you can say that I don't care, you can say that I'm not there when I need you, you can say that I don't understand, you can say all these things about me as your parent, but as, as much as you say that, I will never stop loving you and I will never stop giving to you my love, my care, my concern, my prayers. Take that love of a broken, sinful parent and multiply it by 10 jillion. And that's the love of your father. One of the greatest stories ever written, in my opinion, outside of the Bible is the story of Les Mis. What an incredible picture of grace. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you maybe not as much. I was first introduced to Les Mis when my parents took my sister and I on a family vacation in 1998, summer of 98, to New York City. I'd never been to New York before, and we get there, and I can remember, they said, we're going to see some Broadway shows while we're here. And I said, man, that sounds great. And they said, one of them's going to be Les Mis. And I said, that, that's what now? That sounds horrible. It even says it in the name, Les Miserables. Little did I know, my mom thankfully said, here, you need to read a synopsis of what this story is because if not, you're going to go in and you're going to be lost. And so I read the synopsis and I went in and I was deeply moved by the story, even as a 20-year-old guy, of this story centered around this main character of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was a thief. He wasn't much of a thief, but he was a thief. He took bread. He was starving. He and his family were starving, so he stole a loaf of bread and he got caught. Because of the situation of the French government at the time, he was thrown in prison for 20 years. This is why really the whole story of the Les Mis is leading to this revolution against the authorities. But he's thrown in prison for 20 years, and over the course of those 20 years, he begins to believe that he is indeed what they say he is, that he's a thief. So he embraces that identity so that when he gets out after his 20 years of incarceration, of hard labor, he, he has nowhere to go, and he believes deep down, I'm a thief. As he's wandering around, having no place to stay, a priest takes him in, shows him kindness, generosity. He feeds him, gives him clothes and a place to sleep. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean, believing that at the core of who he is, that he's a thief, he, he says, okay, I've got to be true to who I am. And so he steals from this priest that has been so kind to him. He takes his silver, his forks and his knives and all the silverware, and he takes these candle operas and different things, and he throws them in his bag and thinking, this is my way to get back on my feet. I'll sell these things and get money. He escapes in the night. As the story goes on, the next day, the authorities catch Jean Valjean and bring him back to the priest. And all the priest needs to say is, yes, this is the man who took my things, and he would be right back in the prison. Instead, the priest essentially says, you can steal from me but I will love you. The thief says, well, yeah, he didn't take these things. I gave them to him. And not only that, he didn't, he didn't take everything I told him to take. Here, take these and take these and take these and take them with you. And then he pulls him to the side and he says, Jean Valjean, I am claiming your life for God. Jean Valjean encountered grace. Listen to his response. He says, why did I allow this man to touch my soul and to teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? 
For I had come to hate this world, this world that always hated me. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall, and the night is closing in. As I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin, I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. You see, this thief meets Jesus through one of Jesus' people and experiences the grace of Christ. And another story begins. He was changed. And he went to just not being one, not from being one that just stopped stealing. But as the rest of the story go, goes, Jean Valjean pours out his life as a generous representation of this Jesus to help others. So we as a people of God, as the church of God, as those who are in Christ, may we be a people who don't just read the eighth commandment and go, okay, I got that. I, I don't steal. But that we would see that and it would be a call to say, am I carrying with me in action, in word, in deed, in everything that I am, the spirit and the love and the grace and the generosity of, people, of Jesus in such a way towards people that I am a conduit for a new story in their lives where I can show them Jesus and they meet him and a new story begins. And we move from takers to givers. It's a lot more than just do not steal. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your word, for your grace, your unlimited, immeasurable love. The cross reminds us so vividly of how you gave. People who had mocked you and shamed you, stripped you of your dignity. You went to the cross for us. And you gave limitlessly. God, help us this morning, even in this moment right now, as we sit here before you, help us to just begin in just even small ways to wrap our minds around the way that you love us and the way that you have invaded our hearts to change us so that we would be like you. God, have your way with us and be praised, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.